Well, praise God. I am so thankful to come to another one of these nights again. Doing this together as a body of Christ is so immensely encouraging to my soul, and I anticipate, as I'm sure many of you brothers and sisters do this evening, a night in which we can rejoice heartily in what Christ has done. I pray that is why you are here this evening. And it's our joy to be able to open up the Word for a brief time this evening. And so if you have your Bibles with you and you wish to follow along, you can open up with me to Psalm 73. It's my intention this evening to deal with a favorite portion of Scripture of mine, but certainly uh, I, I would anticipate maybe yours as well, but one in which I'm sure many of us will know. Psalm 73, verse 25 through 26. Before we do begin, would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we come here this evening in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of opening your word on this Lord's day so, so much. We've had ample opportunity to be encouraged, look to Christ. God, you are blessing us again this evening. God, as we look forward to rejoicing with these brothers and sisters in obedience to you. And so we do ask, God, as your word is opened, come, send thy Holy Spirit to work among your people, to work even among the hearts of those with us this evening that do not know Christ. It's our desire that your son would have the glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we prepare for baptism this evening, I just want to put an introductory thought uh, in your mind, before I do read this text, something that pertains particularly to the theme of what I'm about to read, and I want you to ponder with me the differences between a Christian and a non-Christian. Okay, the differences between that which marks the life of someone who is truly in Christ and that which marks the life of somebody who does not know Christ. Even in saying that, I have to emphasize that innately, we would agree nothing separates the Christian and the non-Christian in terms of worthiness for God. Nothing makes the Christian more valuable in the eyes of God in who they are in a fallen nature. We know it's only Christ that makes the difference. But when you look out in a world and you consider from the eyes of somebody who does not know Christ and sees the patterns and the projections and the actions and the decisions and maybe even the sufferings of a Christian, there is an innate difference. There is something inextricably different between the two in terms of their choices, in terms of they handle life, in terms of their decisions, in terms of who they are. And this evening, I want to look at a text that gets right down to the bottom of affection and desire and difference 
and in many ways, if you're a Christian here this evening, what makes you who you are, what determines your decisions in life, and what sets your goals. And uh, if, well, I, uh, my sermon title's not on here, but uh, in the providence of God, my sermon title is God, Our Portion Forever. I know this morning, Tim preached on Christ as our portion, and so in the providence of God, our sermons will be very similar, but the Lord knows, and so much of what I'm going to talk about this evening is in many ways a theological undergirding, you could say, of what Pastor Tim's already preached. So, let's go a little bit deeper this evening. And so to open these up, brothers and sisters, Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. The word of God says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Now, as we take a little bit of a closer look at this text uh, this evening, I want to explore this passage by way of three points that I want to put before you. And the first one, if you're thinking in your head, follow along with me. The first one that we see from this text this evening is that God is the Christian's great end. God is the Christian's great end. Great end of life, great end of purpose, great end of all is God. It says right at the beginning of verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? Who do I have as the outcome of this life, as the purpose of all my goals and all my striving and all my effort? Whom have I except for the Lord? And you have to understand that beginning of that verse really in the context of Psalm 73 because the psalmist has dedicated most of what he's already wrote down in his prayer as petitioning the Lord, in a, in a sense, complaining properly of the seemingly prosperous condition of the wicked that are around the psalmist as he writes this. It, it says throughout the whole psalm, his feet had almost stumbled, he writes of himself. His steps had nearly slipped into egregious action as a result of his envy. He says right at the beginning of the psalm, towards the unrighteous. And note, their comfortable and unhindered lives of rebellion. And I'm just going to go quote through some of the things that he says. He goes through and says, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They scoff and they speak with malice. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, which is God. Their tongue struts through the earth. They have no pangs, even unto death. Another way of saying that, no pain, no suffering. They go to their deathbeds with ease. And he says, even unto death, their bodies are fat and sleek. And so pride, he says, is their necklace. They have garnished it on their person. They stand in the face of God. And violence covers them as a garment. And so on behalf of the seeming endurance of the wicked... The psalmist is driven to bring his complaint before God. And essentially, what looks like injustice, at least at the moment. But he discerns their end, he writes. He sees the outcome of the wicked. 
And he knows when he went into the temple, it says he knows the end that will come to each and every one outside of Christ, which is judgment, condemnation, a swift end to the wicked. They'll be evaporated, removed, destroyed. The language here is God will bring them to an end like a phantom. So why is it that the world seems to continue even today? In rampant evil, seemingly unjudged at times, the wicked prospering in their wickedness. Well, Christian, look at the discernment here that's on the text. Discern their final end. They will be judged. Judged by God. A swift and eternal vengeance of God. But coming back to the text, whom have I in heaven but you? But you, God. For the believer, what is the believer's great end? It's God. It's the Lord God Almighty. The one that he's waiting for. And Matthew Henry writes this of this verse. It is here supposed that God alone is the felicity and chief good of man. He and he only that made the soul can make it happy. There is none in heaven, none in earth that can pretend to do it besides. So what we're seeing here, brothers and sisters, the end of it all, the end of our labors, the end of our striving, the end of our entire life is God himself. That is the goal of everything. That is what is to be received. For the believer in Christ, the outcome that he awaits is God. The judgment, the condemnation has been removed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's nothing innately more worthy in the Christian than there is in the non, but Christ has covered his sin. The judgment of God has been removed in the pardon of Christ. And now the chief end of the Christian is God. God will be received. So what is the great end of our kingdom pursuits? What is the end of even this evening? What is the end of, of why we're celebrating baptism? What is the end of our labor for striving, for holiness, for lost souls, for God, for his magnification? Right? To, to meet God in the air when we come before him. Whom have we when we face the end, beloved? Whom have we when we pass through that dark veil of death, when we take our last final breath, and each and every one of us here this evening will do that? Whom have we if we are in Christ? We have, we have God. And what will be in heaven? It will be God. The joy of all joys. The psalmist writes just prior to verse 25. You guide me, he says, with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me into glory. What will heaven be like? What, what, what will be in heaven for us? It is God himself. He's our great end. And it is... It's a wonderful thing to ponder as a Christian, a glorified body. It's a wonderful thing to ponder e eternity. It's a wonderful thing to ponder singing with the saints for all of eternity, right? Where, where it never ends and the joy is complete and all of our sorrows are gone and all of our tears are wiped away. But at the end of what we're seeing in the psalmist expressing this evening is, is there any true joy Besides this great end, actually being with God, actually worshiping God, receiving God, 
being in his presence. Nothing compares. And this is the end of heaven itself, I would argue from the text, is God himself, the presence of the king who's with us. So what are you holding on to this evening? What are you waiting for? What is your grasp upon in this life? What is your great motive, Christian? What is your great motive in this life? What are you waiting for? What are you expecting? What gives you purpose and fuel? What are you doing all of this for? Are you doing it for him? Is he the end for you? Is it God? That great catechism question, what is your great hope in life and in death? Let nothing, let nothing get in the way of that great purpose and that great end and that great motive, which is your inheritance, God. Don't let anything earthly keep you from that chief outcome. And so think deeply on the end that you have today, my dear friends, God or not God. I want to keep moving on and we'll press into this a little bit further. Secondly, as a result of God being the Christian's great end in this life, the second observation I want to bring to you is that God is the Christian's great desire. Okay? God is the Christian's great chief desire. Look at verse 25 again with me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. Isn't that radical language? <laughs> it's incredible. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing in this world. Put it all in the scale. Balance it all. Weigh it. And if you put it all, it's wanting in comparison to the Christian's great desire for God. Nothing is comparing. It's all, all of the world is paling in comparison to the Christian's desire for God. And here, here the psalmist is, is shifting that focus from what he has in heaven to looking down at the current realities that he has upon this earth. And I would say in this verse we have some of the strongest language about what the true yearning of a Christian really looks like, don't we? Nothing on earth that I desire except for you. Nothing on earth that I desire besides God. Everything that I could ever receive on the planet, all that could be possibly offered to me on a silver platter, save God, is worthless. I want God. He is the only thing that I desire. I long for him and nothing else will ultimately satisfy is the conclusion of the psalmist. And that is remarkable when you think about it. That is truly remarkable about the shift in desires. I mean, really, nothing. If you had it all, if, if let's say, let's say everything was given to you, this world and a thousand worlds upon that, can you inside your heart of hearts speak to something of that reality where there is a desire and a yearning for God and him above all else? Possessions, put it, put it all on the scale, Christian. Possessions, notoriety, Wealth, importance, you name it. Compared to God, nothing. Compared to God. And this is really fundamentally rooted in something that Pastor Tim touched on this morning, which is what we have in God. 
Right? For the Christian who has God, the world is as nothing because the contrast is really immeasurable, isn't it? I'm not arguing for you to just say, I don't want anything, sell all my possessions and find absolutely no value in the things that God calls good and right to have. No, 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 don't get me wrong. But put it into perspective. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. Consider what we have in God, the divine creator, the sustainer, the provider of all. The God to whom the world can't even possibly be compared to rightfully uh, without understanding it is still an immeasurable contrast. Right? When you think about the greatest sources of power and might and manifestation of glory in this world, the highest authorities known to man or the towering mountains that we see in this world, God outmarks, outranks, outglorifies all of them. They're a tiny little picture of the majesty of God. For the Christian, a God of such radiant glory, a, a king whose majesty towers beyond all beauty that we could ever see in this world. And, and a God of love, a God of such, such love. And I think of a, a popular hymn when I think of, just, just to put some perspective in how wondrous God's love is. It says, his love is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Isn't, isn't, isn't that accurate about the love of God and Christ? I mean, fellow believer, consider that. Just try and put something on the scale in comparison to that. And when we think about the love of God, it's no greater shown than it is in the excellency of Jesus Christ, the most dazzling one far beyond all comparison that we could ever put him to Christ out dazzles, outweighs in beauty thousands of thousands of thousand times the world that we could see. And this is the God that we know. And when you put the world on the scale to this God, it's trinkets, small little trinkets. The God who makes himself known to the Christian, what could possibly compare any longer or even command our desire more than this God, this God of the scriptures, this God. And desire is a key word that I want to narrow in with you this evening. Desire that we see here. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Because this, uh, dear brother or sister, this really is the substance of what it means to be a Christian. This is, this is the heart of the Christian life right here. This is really a summarization of what is going on underneath the Christian person, right? The quantity, I think, I think you, never, you don't get much uh, in terms of real, real clear, in a sense, in comparison to this text as to what quantifying true biblical Christianity really looks like in the heart. Because those born again have a new heart and with it, new desires, completely new affections, new everything. They, they no longer have the passions 
of, of, of their will enslaved to the things of this world, the things of those that are radically small. They have supernaturally been remade in their longings. Right? Jonathan Edwards, great writer of the past, said that this was really the defining mark of the Christian was the religious affections. Right? Their desires which motivated everything in their life and all their choices. What they love has been radically altered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such that it completely alters their responses to this world and what it might offer to them. And this is really incredible because when, when you think about the world, maybe when you, Christian, think about what you used to be, maybe you, non-believer, think about what runs your affections today. The world runs on striving and pursuing and desiring everything that the world has to offer. People live for it. They give their lives to pieces of metal and to pieces of wood. And they give their lives for what's offered in the here and the now. Success, wealth, earthly happiness. And when you think of the believer, what has radically shifted in salvation is that they would have none of it anymore in contrast to God. It's just not beautiful in the same way. God owns their affections. He owns their attractions. And the world and the wicked, in a sense, can keep on drinking and accumulating down the world and even live in prosperity and not be judged in this life. And guess what? The Christian can be freed from the brokenness of seeing them in that comfort, knowing, well, I have God. I have God. I'm not restrained to the same desires. I'm not bothered that they have prosperity and I don't. I have the greatest object known. It is God himself. The gospel, forgiveness. Let that sink in. The world has their pieces of metal and the world has their pieces of wood and the world has their trinkets and their objects. What is that to us? Right? We have God. They're perishables. Our, really, our response should be, give us more of Christ. Give us more of Jesus. We don't long for the world anymore. We long for Christ. And so I submit, offer the Christian the whole world on a platter in comparison to God. Give it all to him. And the proper response is, God is far better to me. You can keep it. <laughs> I want God. And what really piques my interest is my experience recently with Brother Rob, where we had the opportunity to interview many new members coming into the congregation here at Fairview. And you know what stuck out time and time again? Testimony after testimony after testimony is how so much changed in the affections of their heart when God showed them Christ, showed them the error of their ways, struck them with their sinfulness and brought them the forgiveness of Christ. And the radical change that happened is, is moving, right? It's, it's so incredible and so encouraging to witness the work of God in the Christian's life when their desires and affections have so changed, the world has no, no yearning in their heart any longer. And I praise God for that. I praise God for you. <laughs> the third and final observation before we come to a close, brothers and sisters, is that God cannot be separated from the Christian. Cannot. 
We've already noted that God is the Christian's great end. God is the Christian's great desire. And now God cannot be separated from the Christian. The Christian cannot lose his first love. Another way of putting it. And verse 26 gives me that when it says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not the failure of the most important and vital organ of my body can remove my great strength or my great portion. Not the failure of life, not my ability to continue functioning and breathing and living as a human being can remove my great strength and my great perseverance is what the psalmist is bringing us to. It cannot take away my portion, my portion in God, my portion in Christ. Let my body deteriorate and fail. Let my health evaporate before me. You have still not taken away my supreme joy. And so none of these things, brothers and sisters, are able to separate this psalmist and us from what he or we truly love, which is God. And he states that God is the strength of his heart and not his heart himself, not, not even his flesh. And another word for um, strength in this text is literally rock. God is the rock of my heart. God is the establishment of my heart. God is the perseverance of my entire being. God is the, in other words, the immovable power of my perseverance in life, not simply the physical organ that pumps blood through my body. God's. The Lord himself is what keeps me established, not my perfect health. In other words, if I lose everything and of, of supremacy, if I lose my health and I lose my life, I still haven't lost what keeps me going in the first place for the Christian. I still haven't lost my, my main fuel and motive for this life. My love, my motive, my strength to continue is not found in my health. It is found in my portion, which is God. So if I lose my health... I still have God, God, and if I die, I get more of God. So praise the Lord for it. And this is another amazing truth, because we looked at how the world desires the things that are offered to them here and now. And we look here, this is amazing, because of all the things people in this world hold on to most, I would argue that it is health, and it is this life, and it, and it is those things because those are the ability for them to continue on in this world, right? Just, just consider the past three years of the idolatrous grasp upon life and the, even uh, the, the, the consignment of moving away from personal freedoms for the ability to maintain, or at least what is, what is peddled, the ability to maintain life because if it's lost, I've lost everything. You see the world's idolatrous grasp on life and anything that's offered to them, anything that's offered to those outside of Jesus Christ to maintain that life, they'll take. It's what grants humanity the ability to continue pursuing the pleasures of this world. And so if you take it away, there's nothing else. But the Christian has an entirely different perspective because health is not the most important thing. Health, this life is not. God is not our ability to sustain our physical life. The significance of persevering 
or preserving our own bodies in this life pales in comparison to the value and the inheritance that we have in our God. Absolutely pales. And so like the world and its pleasures, this current frame that we have is just passing away like the rest. And so if we lose it, we are ready for the next one. We're ready for glory. And when the psalmist writes that my flesh and my heart may fail, I don't, I don't necessarily think he's implying uh, that they may or may not necessarily. I think when he writes that instead, he's communicating that given the circumstances in which they do fail, when my health gives up, when my heart gives up, because they're going to, you are my strength, God. You are my perseverance. When I do walk through that path and when I do consider or when I do experience my life dwindling away, I know that I still have my God. God is my portion and my strength. For the Christian, even all of us, we expect illness. We expect disease. We expect death. We expect pain. We expect suffering. We live in a fallen world. These things are going to come upon our person in the providence of God. And in his will, we know that they will. We live in a fallen world. But the beauty of this text is the joy that we need, which is that nothing of those things is going to separate us from God. None of those are our strength. I mean, what are you living for? Is it this life? Is it for God? Our hearts and our flesh may fail, and certainly it will, but God is our strength and our portion. And this is a defining mark of the Christian, which is contentment. Christian can be satisfied no matter what comes, because they know that they have God. No matter what, nothing is going to remove the Christian from the true strength and the joy of his heart. He can lose it all and still be content. And it reminds me of Job and Satan coming before God and accusing God for this very thing, saying, stretch out your hand, God, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. You notice that? Devil assumes that if you take away from Job, like you take away from any man, his heart, his ability to maintain his breath, his own person and his health, then he's going to curse you because you haven't touched the closest thing to his heart. But we know better. What's Job's response? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? See, the truth of Job's heart is exactly the same. God is his portion. God is his strength. Not his physical ability to maintain this life or continue on for what's here and now, but for God. So we can lose our health. We can lose all our possessions. We have God. If that is in the providence of God, of God what we do experience. Now, these are weighty. These are wonderful things to consider. And I want to close with just a few tiny applications for you before we come to a wonderful portion this evening to rejoice in Christ. And this is a motive that is absolutely indispensable from what I have told you so far. I have just elaborated on what really the true condition of the Christian is. The core of his being, the core of his desire, the factors that make his choices, and, and what gets them through difficult times. But you cannot miss... 
Jesus. You cannot miss Christ. What gets the Christian through? What gets us through? It is simply Christ. What, what brings about these desires, these yearnings to bring us to a place where we can say, take the world, I don't care about it. Give me God and I am content. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You must know Jesus. You must look to Jesus Christ. You must abide in Jesus Christ. And all throughout my study of this text, one line of another hymn just kept coming and coming, coming to me. And I have to leave you on it because it's so appropriate for it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you believe that, Christian? That is the source of where you see this call from your heart developing. If it's struggling and if it's waning, here it is, Christ Jesus. And if you came this evening and you don't have any of this, you don't have this desire and your heart is glued to the world and you're stuck and you're on your way to an eternity separate from God, you have the exact same place that you need to go. Jesus Christ, look at him. The world becomes strangely dim. In the light of a Christ who would come to this world and give his life upon the cross, suffer the wrath of God for wicked sinners like you and like me, and give us this new heart, this radical, almost really impossible by natural means desire, it's Jesus Christ. You start with Jesus Christ. Christ is the motive to cry out, whom have I in heaven? But you, I don't want anything in the world but God. Christ is the divine grace which powerfully changes the heart to cry out here what would absolutely otherwise be impossible by any other means. It is Christ. Christ Jesus. And if Christ isn't the reality of your life, then look to Jesus. Look to his person. The divine one. God's son in flesh, look to his sacrifice, willing to go voluntarily to the cross to suffer our punishment. Look to his forgiveness, free pardon of all your sins, acceptance with the God that you've made your enemy. Look to his promise that in his resurrection, you too shall be made in like manner and you'll receive an inheritance in his name that far surpasses what all the world could ever offer you. It's Christ. And may he dazzle you this evening. And oh, I know he's, praise God, he's going to as we hear these testimonies. But I plead with you to come and to know this very heart cry. Begin with Christ and with Christ. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we do pray this evening that you would take our eyes and fix them upon your son, the Lamb the one who was so willing and so mighty to save. God, for those among us that do not know Jesus, I do pray that you would lift them out of the darkness that they are enslaved in. And God, and bring them into your glorious light even this very evening. Oh, do this work of the heart that we too have experienced and that God, oh, by your mercy and grace, we will rejoice in as David and June come forward. 
God, we do pray for them that you would bless them and their testimonies and encourage them. God, and encourage our hearts as we rejoice in the work of your son, this very work we've read this evening. It's in his name that we pray and praise Jesus Christ. Amen.